Amen. Thanks, Dan. Um, hey, uh, as you grab a seat, our kids, you can go ahead and slide out to the top up there with our Redemption Kids volunteers. Hey, if you're new with us and uh, you haven't checked in your child yet or not sure where to go, just follow our team members. You'll see the Home Depot orange Redemption Kids aprons. Uh, you can just follow them up top and they'll get you squared away. As they're sliding out, hey, look, grab a copy of God's Word or, uh, or if you're using a device, turn, uh, turn God's Word on. To a, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. If you've got one of the Bibles we provide, that's page 928, Acts 19. Well, my name is John Chastine. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you're new with us today, maybe you saw me at soccer nights. Um, I had a blast hanging with many of you guys volunteering and, and all these kiddos, um, but glad and honored to bring God's Word with you today. Here's where we've been so far um, over the past few weeks. We've been working through the book of Acts in this series um, called In Boston As It Is in Heaven. Last week, Tanner was with us um, in, uh, in Acts 18, where we looked at Paul's second missionary journey, his work in Corinth, and there were two main truths for you. The first one was this, God's got you, and the second one is God's got them. And we looked at the work of God in the city and, uh, and given us courage and boldness to proclaim Christ, but also given us confidence that, that God is even providentially and sovereignly working in people and individuals in our city. Here's where we're going today. We're going to keep plowing through Acts today. We're going to see the end of his second missionary journey and kick off his third missionary journey. So in God's word, turn with me, Acts 19. I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to go back to, verse, to chapter 18 briefly to catch us up to speed, fill in the gap from where we left off last week and catching us up. So in Acts 18, beginning in verse 18, the word of God says this, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And then it says, at Sincrei, he, um, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And then they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. What we see in this transition passage here was that Paul actually went to Ephesus at the very end of that second missionary journey. And who did he leave? He left Priscilla and Aquila there to oversee the work in the ministry. So Paul's wrapping up his journey. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. And then we're going to continue on in verse 22. And it says, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. That's the end of a second missionary journey. We just wrapped that up. Antioch has been home base for him where he's launched out on these journeys. Now we're going to pick up in verse 23. Let's keep reading. It says, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. I got a map up here for you just to help us get our bearings as we're reading through Paul's missionary journeys. You can see the starting point of his third missionary journey on the far right up here um, is Antioch. And what we just read here, um, it says that he went through the region of Galatia. You can see that, which is now modern-day Turkey in the middle up here. He went through Galatia and then Phrygia just to the left here, and he's headed all the way to Ephesus. 
Ephesus is in Asia. Now, don't confuse. When you read Asia here today, don't confuse that with the continent of Asia. This is, we're going to think about it and what they meant at the time the Bible was being written here. It was this section, modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was what we now know as the Aegean Sea, right on the coast here. That's where Paul's headed. And this is setting, this is the backdrop for us to understand our text today. So let's keep going um, in verse 24. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross the Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus." The reason I'm giving you this background is it's setting the stage for us to understand, you'll see in a second, what's going on when Paul actually arrives again in Ephesus. Let me just help you out a little bit. Ephesus, a little more background here, was a really important city um, in, uh, in Asia. It's actually the capital city there. Being right on the waters, it was right along the trade route from Rome. Um, and as a result, it was a very wealthy city. Um, I had the privilege actually back in college um, as I spent a month over in Central Asia to spend a few days in Ephesus. Um, and so they're, they're still today. You can go to modern-day Ephesus. Um, it's about five miles now inland. Um, the sea doesn't come all the way up to where it used to be, but there is still much that you can see from the city. So just to share that with you, like what we're reading about in the Word isn't some just... This is a real city that you could go visit, you could learn, you could study about. One of the things that you could see that Ephesus is known about is the Temple of Artemis, and we're going to see that come in later on a story. And the many shrines there that really just captured um, the, the religious sector and, and the cult there in Ephesus. Apollos. We are introduced to this guy. A Jew, eloquent, competent in the scriptures. You read this and you're like, man, this guy is killing it. But it gives us this one caveat. He only knew the baptism of John. And so Paul left Priscilla and Quilla there. They quietly pull him to the side. It says they instruct him more accurately concerning Jesus. And then he continues ministry and they send him on. Here, here's, here's the link to our text today. When we pick up in Acts 19 verse 1, look here with me. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. We're about to see a section here in Ephesus that's he shows up and he runs into some disciples that had not heard of the baptism of Jesus, similar to Apollos. And so this is setting the stage to understand what was going on there. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to look at our text now. We're going to primarily focus in on 19, 1 through 20 today um, and seeing what God's doing through Paul in Ephesus. So let's pick back up here. In verse 1, it says, While Paul passed through and came to Ephesus, there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? 
They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And then it says, and he continued. He entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Then Luke paints another scene for us from Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were um, now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, catch this, guys. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here's our point today. When God awakens people through the word, transformation is evident. When God awakens people through the word, transformation is evident. This is my prayer for us today. Verse 20, that the word of God would increase and would prevail. As we think individually today, and then as we think about a, us as a church, the word of God would increase and would prevail mightily. So I just want to pause. I want to pray. I know we've, we've read some scripture today. I want to pray that, that God would have his way in us. God, we just pause right now because we acknowledge we need your grace and your spirit to work in us, that your word would have your way, that you... Your word would increase in our city. God, it would prevail, that it, it would work powerfully in our lives to bring the transformation that we're seeing it did here in Ephesus. God, would you do so in us? God, we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Here's what I want to do. In that main point, I just want to break it down in these four sections and highlight some truths that it, that it teaches us about who God is and what he's doing and how we can work in our lives. And the first one is this. The Word of God awakens and brings full knowledge of the Spirit. We see this in the first seven verses here. 
And I know it probably raises some questions. Hey, we've got Apollos here who's, who's got some pretty high credentials. And then it says Jesus found some disciples here, but the caveat with both of them, it says they, had, they only knew the baptism of John. So how are we to understand like, who Apollos is and, and who these disciples are? On the one hand, as we read through this, we see language that seems to indicate that, that they're genuine followers of Christ. I mean, look at Apollos. Look at the way it describes him back in chapter 18, verses 24 and following. Eloquent, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Look at these disciples here in Acts 19. It says um, in verse 2, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul's a, they've obviously believed. He, he's not questioning have they believed. He's saying, did you receive the Spirit? So these are being described as believers. He calls them disciples. And yet, yet on the other hand, we all probably know parallel Scriptures. As we look at the work of the Spirit, that would question, hey, if somebody doesn't, if they're only familiar with the baptism of John and not the Holy Spirit, do they really know Christ? For instance, look at some of these. In John 3, 5, right from the words of Christ, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Or what about this? Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to to him. So we see clearly, like, if you belong to Christ, you've got the Spirit. If you've responded, repented, believed, you've got the Spirit. Paul makes that pretty clear later on in Romans, and, and we'll look at Ephesians in a second. But it says this, let's just press in a little bit. What did they know about the baptism of John? If we were to go back to Luke chapter 6, so Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Sorry, Luke chapter 3. If we're to go back to Luke chapter 3, I've got on the screen up here for us. It says this about the baptism of John. It says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If they knew of the baptism of John, it says here, their response is, hey, we have not heard that there's the Holy Spirit. It sounds confusing. It sounds as if they didn't even know there was a Spirit. If they knew the baptism of John, he's telling them, hey, I'm, the, I'm preparing the way. John's message was, I'm not the Christ. There's one coming that's greater than I. Mine's a baptism of repentance. See your sin, turn from your sin, and prepare yourself to receive the Messiah, the Christ. He is going to be the one who's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. They would have they known about the Spirit. Apollos would have known about the Spirit. These disciples, what they didn't know, most likely, was whether that promise had been fulfilled already or not. In other words, they were ignorant of Pentecost. They would, have, they would have known there was a Messiah coming. They would have known about a spirit. But what's not clear in the text is how much they knew about Jesus. 
Like, was Apollos teaching accurately about who Jesus was, but did that include his death and resurrection? Did, Did these disciples here in Acts 19, had they heard of the death and resurrection of Christ? To be honest with you, the Scripture doesn't tell us. That we see, we see hints here that, that they did. So what happens? It says here that when Paul explains to them about the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, speaking of water baptism. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So they immediately, after hearing about the baptism of Jesus, respond in obedience. And then we see Paul lay his hands on him. Really, what's, th- this, is a, this is an experience similar to what happened at Pentecost. We go and read in Acts 2 what happened when the Spirit came. They were speaking in tongues and prophesying. I mean, it's like a mini Pentecost here, and it's confirming the work that God has done in them. It confirms that the Spirit has come and shows that they are now completed and come to full knowledge in their faith. Now let me just step back for a second. What are the implications on us? First, I want to just clarify. Both of Paul's questions imply here that what is happening is extraordinarily, it's an anomaly. I mean, how did, what's his first question? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? That's the normal. He's assuming this is what happens. You believe, you receive the Spirit. And so, like, what we're not to do is look at this and say, hey, is there a second baptism that, you know, are there two baptisms that I need to be a part of? That's not our response. The normal pattern today in how a person receives the Spirit is that we repent and we believe, and we're receiving the Spirit. Let me just show you this. In Ephesians chapter 1, this is the letter Paul writes to Ephesus. This is what he says in verses 13 and 14. You can see it on the screen. In him also, speaking to them, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How do you receive the Spirit? You hear the gospel, you respond in faith, and it says, and you are sealed with the Spirit. God sends his Spirit when we respond and believe. And so, as I look at Acts 19, just what is clear? What is clear is that, man, God is at work here. At worst case, They're just merely disciples of John. At best case, they're nominal Christians that that were really like Old Testament believers. Looking forward, they were on the other side of the cross, looking forward to the Messiah to come. And now Paul's saying, He has come, and the Spirit has come, and now they are baptized and they receive the Spirit. So let me just ask you this Have you responded in faith? And believed in the work of Christ that he's done for you. The good news of the gospel is this. We are all sinners. Our sin separates us from God. 
the whole point of Jesus coming and you see in his life that he's, he's doing miracles and he's raising the dead. He's, he's showing that he's coming to reverse what sin has brought, which is death and destruction and, and infected us in so many different ways. Jesus is reversing that. That's all a result of our sin. He came and he died. He lived a perfect life. He died and went to the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. And so the way to God is not through works. It's not through, you can come to church, you can read your Bible, you can strive all you want. That is not going to get you to God. The way to God, the pathway, is for you to humble yourself, to confess your sin, and to look to Jesus and say, you paid the penalty for my sin. You were the way that, that I get to God. He, he is the way. He is our access to God. And we respond and we believe. It is as simple as that. We turn from our sin and we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Have you responded by turning from your sin and believing in Jesus? Second, have you been obedient and followed with Christian baptism? What we see here, I love this example. Like, there, there's an, we can question these disciples. Like, really, like, they're just, they're taking steps with the knowledge that they had. When Paul provided further knowledge, what did they do? They obeyed. And so, maybe a next step for you is say, you know what, I'm professing Jesus, but I've never gone public with Christian baptism to profess my allegiance to who Jesus is. Maybe that is your next step. We see the Word of God awakening and bring full knowledge of the Spirit. The second truth we see here is the Word of God builds up and spreads through Paul and the church. Let's go into verses 8 through 10. This really provides a summary of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. First of all, we see here he entered the synagogue, and this was this, anywhere he went. This was his normal custom. He's going to go to the synagogue, and it says, For three months he spoke boldly, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. When you see this phrase, kingdom of God, here, this is another way of Jesus convincing them of the good news of the gospel. Later on in Acts, i got a verse for you here. In Acts 28, 23, it describes Paul's ministry this way. It says, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the, the law of Moses and from the prophets. So he's explaining here, what does he mean? Like he's convinced them of the kingdom of God. He's going through the Old Testament, the, the law of Moses, the prophets, and he's convincing them, hey, this Jesus who just came and lived and died, he is the one who was promised from the very beginning. Repent, believe, place your faith in him. That's what he's doing here in the synagogue. But what we see here is that not all receive him. In verse 9, it says, But when some became stubborn, this word stubborn here means to be hardened. If you were to, you were to look at the Greek parallel to the Old Testament here, you would see that it's also used of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart being hardened, and speaking of the people in the wilderness, that they were hardened, they, they were stubborn, their, their hearts were hardened. They continued in unbelief and speaking evil of the way. Um, Bach, a commentator, says this threefold response of hardening, unbelief, and speaking evil indicates complete rejection of Paul's message. So what does he do? 
it says he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Here's what I want us to see here. We see the word of God as Paul is proclaiming it. And then for two years, guys, check this. It says daily. He's reasoning with them. Now, what did that look like? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to jump forward here with me. I want you to jump forward to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 18. Chapter 20, verse 18 says this. Later on in Paul's journey, he's going to leave Ephesus and then he's going to come back and spend some time with the elders. And this gives us a window into what did these roughly three years look like at Ephesus. He says this in in 2018, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. He's laboring. You hear this language? I did not shrink from sharing anything that would have been profitable for you. Jump on ahead. Look at verse 26 of chapter 20. He concludes, Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And look down at verse 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Do you hear that? He has labored with them. He is the scriptures. He's been letting the word do the work. And now he says, hey, he's leaving the elders. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's convinced he's not going to see them again. He says, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourself knows that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. You, you want to appear in here a little bit? Most likely, Paul worked his own trade till 11 o'clock every day. His own job. He says, I did not rely on you to, I, I worked with my own hands so that I wasn't going to be a burden on you. He worked a job. And then in some of the text, it actually includes in here, if we go back to Acts 19, it says that when he taught in the hall of Tyrannus, it was between the hours of 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. So get this, Paul got up early, went and worked his job, and then daily, when it invested in them, out of his own free will. Do you think that was a worthy investment? What do you guys think? I think that's storing up treasures in heaven. I mean, there's a lot of things he could have done with his time. I guarantee you he was tired. He says, with tears, and then he's describing, I suffered. Like, we could go on and on. Like, we're not given all right here in Acts of that happened in Ephesus. But it wasn't an easy, it wasn't an easy three years. But you know what the fruit of it was? 
Go back to Acts 19, verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, again, remember our map. We're not talking about the continent of Asia. We're talking about that section. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How's that possible? You would expect, hey, I did this, and hey, the word spread in Ephesus. That's not what it says. It says all the residents of Asia, as a result of my investment in Ephesus, there was a ripple effect that spread through all of Asia. Ephesus was like, was his missionary base where he made disciples, sent out laborers to take the gospel all over Asia. My guess is he didn't personally share with every person, but he invested and he sent out. We could see a lot of the churches that he planted as a result of his investment in his ministry. I think one of the takeaways for us, I want you to consider this. Consider what kind of impact you can have with a long sustained ministry in one area. I want you to think about that. I know Paul did, his primary was church planting, but we see here a window in Ephesus of an impact that he had here because of this long sustained ministries. Um, One of the joys of my summer, I've got to spend a lot of time with um, our summer link interns that have been with us. You know what? This is their last Sunday. We we should... uh, I want you guys to stand up. All my Summer Link interns that are here, I want you guys to stand up. Hey, don't be shy. Hey, yes. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, they gave us eight weeks. They're going to be wrapping up this week, and then next week we'll be at a debrief, and then they'll be scattering um, some back to South Carolina. Obviously, James will be staying here with us. Um, But hey, one of the things that we've done this summer, on Thursday nights, we gather for an equip night um, with them and with about 30 total students that are up here this summer that I've had the opportunity to to spend some time with. Um, A few weeks ago, um, you guys know Curtis Cook, who's a pastor at Hope Fellowship Church, came and spent some time with us. Curtis and Hope was incredibly generous to Redemption Hill. Um, early on and still are. So grateful for him. But one of the things that, that he challenges his own church with, that I love, and he, he challenged our students with, they're, they're going to remember this. Um, he, he says, and, and our whole equip time was on discerning the will of God. He says, how do most people discern and think about where they're going to spend their time? He says, typically, you got a college student goes, they get their college degree, they graduate, and then what do they do? How do they decide where to live? They start looking for jobs, right? It makes sense, right? You, you got to pay the bills. Like, mom and dad are like, get out of the house, you know? So, you know, I'm going to go find a place to make some money backs. Here's what Curtis says. He says, look, there are jobs everywhere. And he, he does this in Cambridge. He challenges his church. He says, look, why not rather consider I'm going to find a church, a church plant, an area where I can leverage my life for the sake of the gospel and go, find, go plant myself there and find a job. It's a complete reversal. So I just want to put that out for you guys. 
And I don't know that we've ever shared that with you, but I love it. I, I share that with people often. Like, why, not, why are we not prioritizing, as followers of Jesus, the mission of God? Like, why should a job pro- be the primary reason I think about where I live? So let me just challenge you to wrestle with this. I would love for you guys to consider there may be great opportunities. And look, don't, don't hear me. I mean, there's, I'm not saying you can't leave. Like, Curtis has seen a ton of people leave, and there are a lot of good reasons to leave. But why not pray and at least consider, you know what? There's a great opportunity for me to have a maximum impact and investment. I could go get a job somewhere else, but I'm going to plant myself here for the sake of the gospel. Or as a college student, I'm going to go find a church plant that I can go, and I'm going to get a job near them, and I'm going to give towards them. They would love it. Like, thinking missionally, like, I just do that. We see Paul investing here, and it paying off dividends in his work. Let's go on this. The third truth I want us to see in verses 11 through 17. The power of God through Paul awakens an entire city. What we see here, again, we're seeing in this chapter some extraordinary things happening. We already saw that with the baptism of John and and the baptism of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. Now we're going to see this with Paul. It says this, and Luke makes it explicit. In verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. That word, extraordinary, doesn't accompany any of these references of miracles in the rest of Acts. It's the only time. Paul's highlighting what's happening here is is not ordinarily what's happening and when we see these miracles happening. Um, He's highlighting that it's an out-of-the-ordinary experience, something very unusual. It's actually similar to, you guys remember in the Gospels, Jesus healed a lady, and it says that she, all she did was touch the fringe of his garment. Luke 8, 44, and she was healed. Jesus said, he, it said he, I think it says that he sent some power go out from him, and he turned around to figure out who had touched his garment. This is similar to that. Here's what they're not doing. They're not waving handkerchiefs. They're not selling them. It's not like some magic tool that they're trying to deliver. Hey, if you have this, like, the key point here is really not Paul, it's God. Look back at the text. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul was just a mediator. This is what God was doing, the sovereign will and plan of God. What was happening in verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came to them. We see two things happening. One, people being healed of physical sickness and then we see evil spirits that were being cast out. Now we see in Jesus' ministry, he'd do a lot of this as I've already mentioned. Like This is a picture of the coming kingdom. God is going to bring complete reversal to all these sicknesses that we face and anything evil and demonic. This is what he's doing. Sometimes we get a foretaste of it now. We see that in Acts. But all of us, we long for the day of the redemption of our bodies where we will experience full and complete redemption and restoration. That is the good news of the gospel. If you're here today and you're sick, the hope of the gospel is that God one day will completely restore not just your soul, but your body. So Paul is doing these amazing things. And in contrast to that, 
in contrast to God's power displayed through Paul, there were seven sons of Sceva. It says they were Jewish itinerant exorcists. And they get this crazy idea. Well, if Paul can do this by the name of Jesus, let's see if we can give it a run. So we see here in verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. These are not believers of Jesus. They, they're, they're, they're trying to manipulate. This is the difference between a miracle and magic. They're trying to manipulate the gods to coerce, to use some spell to bring about some type of magic. You can't do that with God. And so they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And you know what happens? They were given the business. It says, verse 15, but the evil spirit answered, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Okay, we, I know who Jesus is, and I've seen the work of God through Paul, but man, you're an imposter. And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They were completely humiliated. This, I mean, it's okay to laugh. Like, I think this is hilarious right here. Not like, I'm, I'm not laughing at like the name of Jesus, but like, this would have been a, okay, you guys aren't there with me. I think it would have been a funny sight. Like, these guys were basically put in their place here. I mean, even funnier might be what happens in verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Can you, can you imagine what Facebook, like, Back in the day, or like somebody's going Facebook Live or Boston.com, like this thing, like we've got seven guys. They, they're completely naked, and they're fleeing down, you know, Boston. And I'll stop. What's the whole point of this? They were completely overpowered. One, one commentator says what happens here is actually a reverse exorcism. You have the demon is driving out the exorcist. It says, reverent fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The whole city wasn't converted. But they were awakened to consider the real power of God. Again, think of Ephesus here. The, the temple of Artemis, like all of this magic that's going on. And what's happening here is they're seeing the power of God on display through Paul. They can't do that. There was only one answer that this is, must be the true God. Who is this God that is doing this work? So the power of God through Paul awakens an entire, an entire city. And then finally, we see the word of God radically transforms lives and cities. In verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. You know what happens when, when the word of God begins to increase and prevail mightily? People, believers, Notice this. This is believers here. I mean, we, there is a, there is, there's an awakening happening in the church such that they're being convicted of their sin. They're saying, man, I, I, I've, 
these, uh, these practices are an empty pursuit. They're publicly confessing them and divulging them. And then it continues, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. There's debate over how much that was actually worth. I've seen numbers ranging anywhere from like $10,000 in today's term to $6 million. So that's a pretty wide range. But here, $10,000 is still a lot of money. There was such transformation happening that the city took notice. When the Word of God begins to work deeply in our lives, it's like a mirror that shows us who Jesus is and who God is. And that's what we're striving to be. Hey, as believers, I I profess to be a follower of Jesus, but I don't proclaim to have it all together. That's not our story. My story is that Jesus is holy. Jesus has done it, and we say, I'm just helping all people and myself become and multiply mature followers of Jesus. And so here's the story for all of us. God is not done with you. Just like at Ephesus, and he wasn't done with them, he's not done with us. As we wrap up today in, in, in the band, I want you guys to go ahead and slide on and come on stage. Don't, don't clock out with me yet. I want you to hang in here with me. What might it be at Redemption Hill Church? What might it be in Medford or Greater Boston? Like, what are the practices? What are the idols? I mean, what would it look like if, if the Word of God just increasingly were to prevail that we would be, man, it would be going public, that, man, we're turning from these things. When Jesus called his followers, he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and come follow me. He said, don't store up treasures on earth, store up treasures in heaven. He said, what good is it if you gain the whole world yet lose your soul? So let me just ask you, Redemption, and this is as we respond through singing and then we're going to do the Lord's Supper later on. Like, I just want you to look inward. Like, what are the practices that just the Word of God is convicting you of, that, that, that the power of God just wants to set you free from, that they just need to be laid down, that they need to be turned from, they need to be burned, they need to be repented of? That it would be said of Redemption Hill like, that this is a church that hasn't arrived. They're, they're turning. The Word of God is, is weakly prevailing, and we're increasingly seeing believers grow in more and more likeness of Jesus Christ. Jesus changes everything, and as He changes each of us individually, He's going to change our city. Hey, and by the way, this is the purpose of the Holy Spirit in you. When you repent and believe, he puts a spirit in you, and the Spirit of God combined with the Word of God as we invest in it is what produces the power of God in us to live the way he wants us to live. Before we pray, one other cool side note. Their example led to more conversions. 
the word of God continue to increase and multiply. Like as they are responding and turning from their sin, like God is using that for the word of God to continue to spread. It's an evidence of the power of God in our city. So let's seek God, let's pursue after God, and let's just pray, God, would you continue to come and have your way, awaken us for a fresh work and for your word to have its way, work mightily in us. Let me pray. God, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your spirit that you've put in us. God, we pray that your power would be evident in our lives. Would it be evident in how we pursue holiness? Would it be evident as we go and, and we share Jesus with others, as we, as we boldly reason with people to convince them that Jesus is the Christ and we let your word loose to do the work? God, I pray that you would just lead us continually to just fresh repentance and confession. God, even as in, a, in a few minutes as we partake of the Lord's Supper, God, that, that we would not just eat of of your body that was broken and drink of, of your blood that was shed without just looking at the sin that's in many ways evident in our lives. God, would you do a fresh work in us? Produce holiness in us. God, we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.